I'm going to start with a funny little story. You've probably heard it before. There's a woman walking along a, a road one day, and she notices two local council workers who are at work by the roadside. And she's quite impressed, actually, as she watches them work with their, with their effort, with their application, their slogging away. But she cannot actually quite work out what their job actually is. So she stops and she watches them for a bit. And uh, still she cannot understand what it is they are supposed to be doing by the side of the road. And finally she goes up to them and she says, Morning, gents. I can, I can see how hard you're working. It's really impressive and amazing. But I'm intrigued to know what your job actually is. It seems that one of you digs a hole and the other one of you just kind of fills it in again afterwards. Oh, that's right, they say. Brian, who plants the trees in the holes, is off sick today. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe you've heard that one before. Uh, it's not new. But I start with that little story because I think it sort of illustrates the futility, the pointlessness that many people feel about their work. And sadly, there are many people who find their job just tediously repetitive or utterly pointless. Maybe you're one of them. Now, as a consequence of that, they feel their lives lack meaning. What's the point of what I do? It's just so useless. And by contrast, in my own working life over the years, I've had colleagues at times for whom work is almost relentlessly stressful, almost overwhelming. A farmer was once asked, what's the hardest thing about milking cows? And he said, the hardest thing about milking cows is the cows never stay milked. And work can, like that, just feel like a relentless treadmill that sucks the life out of you. I've been in working environments. I would describe them as attritional, unfriendly, and sometimes even toxic. Other times, going to work has felt exhilarating and energizing. And I want to ask, what would a Christ-honoring workplace look like? How should a Christian employee or employer approach his or her working day? How should a Christian manager or boss run his or her organization? Those are the kind of things we're going to be looking at this morning together. And it's just five little verses from the end of Colossians 3 and the beginning of Colossians 4. It's quite a short passage, really. Tantalizingly brief, in fact. And people have asked me before, before we read this, people have said, you know, why doesn't the Bible say more about work? Because, after all, for most of us, our job occupies the majority of our waking hours between the ages of 20 and 65. Or is it 67 now? It keeps going up, doesn't it? But God's word actually says quite a bit about work, more than we might realize, in fact. I was reading through the Proverbs last month, or this month, and I highlighted in my Bible over 30 verses that talk about work. Uh, for example, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And this one, he who gathers crop, 
crops in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgrace. Somebody said recently that out of the 52 parables Jesus told, 45 of them are set in a workplace context. And out of 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of them take place in the marketplace. Now, I confess I haven't had time to check uh, those stats, but I suspect they're pretty accurate. And furthermore, Jesus spent 18 years working with his hands. Uh, from his bar mitzvah at the age of 12, at which point he would have gone into his dad's joinery business, uh, until he started his preaching ministry about the age of 30, we're told in the Gospels. That means he spent over 50% of his life as a skilled manual laborer, Jesus. You might think, what a waste. What a waste. He could have healed loads more sick people. He could have told loads more parables, given much more amazing teaching. He could have turned loads more water into loads more wine. Think how useful that would have been. But it wasn't a waste. It wasn't a waste. Working productively and taking care to do a job well are important to God. So I want to encourage you not to think of your Christian life as consisting of basically Sunday and maybe Wednesday night as well. It's Monday to Friday, nine to five as well. And in fact, every moment of every day. Your work, whatever it is you do, whether you're part-time or full-time, whether you're paid or unpaid as a volunteer, your work is a calling. It is a ministry. Ministry isn't just for people who speak on platforms. And please don't think this is not relevant for you because you're retired or because you're unable to work on health grounds or if you're out of work for other reasons. What we're going to consider this morning also applies to the way you do your housework, to the way you do your gardening, your decorating, your cooking, your looking after the grandchildren, uh, you're serving at church, you're studying, whatever you do, it applies to that as well. And what we find in the Bible is that God is much more interested in your work than we might think. Not so much because of what you do, but because of the way that you do it, because of your attitude to it. So with all that said, by way of introduction, let's read Colossians 3.22 to chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong, and that's talking about masters as well as slaves, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. 
Heavenly Father, as we consider these things today, we ask that you'd help us to discern what it is specifically you want to say to us. What is the word, the rema, the now word for my life today? So Lord, help us to tune in to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through these scriptures which you have blessed us by preserving them for us and giving them to us in our own language. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to say straight away about what we've just read is to simply acknowledge that the context, like all of the New Testament, is the first century Roman Empire in which the working world was very different to what it is today in our country. It was a society in which slavery was not just widespread, it was actually all-pervasive. And slavery was a commonplace not only there in the Roman Empire, it was the unquestioned norm everywhere in the world, in the ancient world. I remember the shock and the puzzlement I had in me when I read this um, as a young Christian and passages like it especially the fact that Paul seemed uh, quite neutral about it, really. Uh, no one seems to know what percentage of the Roman Empire uh, was enslaved. If you look online, you see lots of different guesses. An educated guess is maybe 30% of people. Some think that slaves possibly outnumbered free people. And we're talking about tens of millions of individuals, certainly, and it was a central component to the Roman economy. And it's thought that New Testament churches had a disproportionately high number of slaves compared to the general population. And we tend to forget this in our land of wonderful cathedrals and, and bishops sitting in the House of Lords, but the vast majority of first century Christians were poor. They were powerless and often persecuted. They were the outsiders, not anyone with any kind of influence. They were just in no position whatsoever to take on the powers that be. Now, modern slavery is, of course, illegal, thankfully, and it operates in the shadows. And in our day, people get trapped into it and trafficked across borders by unscrupulous criminal gangs. In the Roman world, completely different. It was entirely legal. It was just accepted as the way things were. And there were different ways that you could end up getting enslaved. Uh, some slaves were captives of war. So don't be on the losing side of a war. Some were victims of kidnapping or piracy. So watch your back. More commonly, people became slaves as a punishment for the crimes they committed, so don't commit crime. Some sold themselves into slavery, or tragically, they sold their children into it to settle debts that they simply could not pay. It was a kind of payment. And under Roman law, slaves had no human rights of any kind whatsoever. They were considered property and more than uh, not as persons. And documents from that time describe enslaved people not as employees, but as tools or equipment of a business. 
And mostly what you find in writing, with Roman Empire writings about slaves, it's mostly complaints written by masters about them being disloyal, lazy, or dishonest. That's what you find. And as a consequence, most slaves were treated like animals. They could be bought and sold and mistreated and sexually exploited or even killed for sport without consequences. Now, this is the brutal and harsh world into which God sent the gospel and into which Jesus, the savior of the world, was born. So however bad you feel your workplace is, and some of you have got uh, some pretty heavy workplaces, I get it. I get it. It can be difficult. It can be genuinely awful. It can be humiliatingly underpaid, but it doesn't compare with the way of life of many of the first Christians and some of the people in this church in Colossae that Paul was writing to. So why didn't, this is a bit of a deviation, but I think it's important because some of us will be wondering about this. Why didn't the gospel challenge the status quo of slavery in society more than it did? If you've ever seen the animated film Ice Age, uh, you'll not forget the opening scene in which this little squirrel called Scrat tries to open an acorn on the ice so he can eat his acorn. And alas for him, instead of cracking the acorn, he makes a small crack in the ice and the acorn stays intact. And the crack opens up into a crevice. And with a growing sense of panic in this squirrel's eyes, the crevice gets bigger. And with ominous rumblings, it opens up into being a giant rift valley. And then before long, it's a massive tectonic fault which splits into two continents. I mentioned that scene because that is a little bit like what the gospel did to slavery in the Roman Empire. So the gospel is the acorn. It stays intact. And Roman slavery is this vast, unconquerable, continental ice sheet. And when Paul said that in Christ there is no longer any Jew or Greek, slave or free, he was saying that these are now redundant categories for Christians. They no longer define us, nor can they possibly divide us because every single one of us, whatever our ethnic background, whatever our social status, all of us are first and foremost in Christ. That is what defines us now more than anything else. And because of Christ, Paul told free people that they had been bought with a price, just like a slave. You're like a slave now if you're free. And because of Christ, Paul told enslaved people that they had been set free forever from the law of sin of death. And he says here they can become inheritors, which as slaves they never could. And he said all of us, from the richest and noblest to the poorest and humblest, we all share one loaf when we take communion. We all drink from the same cup when we take communion. There's no up and down anymore. When we share communion, you don't get better bread if you're a VIP. Or you don't get nicer wine if you're rich. Paul said we're all brothers and sisters. We're members of one another. We are all forever, because of Christ, on the same level. 
And that is how the gospel introduced dignity and equality and humanity into a sphere of society where it had never existed before. The little acorn had started to crack the ice sheet. And as the impact of the gospel on civilization steadily grew and grew as the church got bigger, the endorsement of slavery slowly declined until it was abolished altogether. Now, back in the first century, in the Roman world, people would have thought it bizarre, absolutely beyond normal, to be told to treat a slave with kindness and consideration. Why would you have to do that, is what people would think. But here, he says, you guys in charge, if you've become Christians, you cannot go on like before. Those days are over. You are under new management now. You actually are reporting to one higher up than you, you masters, you bosses. So chapter 4, verse 1, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now the Bible, the New Testament in particular, contrasts sharply with all other literature um, of the time on relationships between slaves and masters. What you find in secular records is advice on how to squeeze the maximum out of your workforce as if they were just machines. But Paul absolutely makes a stand on this point. Never mind convention. Forget about culture. Whatever about your customs, these people who work under you are human beings and they have rights and moral options. So if you're a Christian in charge of your workplace, you're going to have to provide for them what is right and fair. From now on, there are going to be really good working conditions where you're in charge. Because, here's the revolutionary thought, you know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, you're going to have to stand before Jesus when he comes again. You're going to have to look him in the eye when he comes to judge the living and the dead, and you're going to have to give a blow-by-blow account of how you treated those who were working for you. And he says at the end of chapter 3, Anyone who does wrong, he's talking about slaves and masters, will be repaid for their wrongs. And in our context, 21st century Darlington, that translates as follows. If you're an employer, if you're a manager, if you have staff who answer to you, because you answer to Christ, who is your boss, you're going to treat each member of staff equally. No favorites. You'll take an interest in them as individuals because God does. You'll pay them what they're worth. You'll respect their time off. You'll not tell them to do anything that you would not be willing to do yourself. You'll give them opportunities to develop their skills When you have to discipline them for unacceptable performance, you'll do it fairly, you'll do it proportionately. 
with no vindictive attitude. Remember when Kathy started work as a community nurse when we lived in France? And on the first day, she came home and she said, um, do you know, I think my new boss, Dr. Mars, is a Christian. I said, well, how can you tell? I thought maybe he wore a, a cross or a fish on his lapel or had some sort of sticker on his car or maybe there was a poster on his wall. Uh, maybe he had a Bible on his desk that she saw. And she said, no, he's none of that. I, I can just tell. I just know he's a Christian. I said, yeah. She'd been with him one day in that practice, and he hadn't said to her a single word about Jesus. She was convinced he was a believer. And what convinced her that he was a Christian is the way he spoke to people. It was his gentleness it was his fairness. He took a genuine interest in his staff, uh, particularly anyone in trouble or in pain. And he was fun to be with. He was always laughing. He was full of joy. And she mentioned that he had adopted three children, and he didn't really seem to care about status symbols, as many of the other doctors did. He drove an old beat-up Citroen 2CV, and he evidently lived quite a simple lifestyle. She said, there's something different about this doctor. She looked him up online. Nothing like stalking your boss on social media, is there? <laughs> she looked him up on social media, and it turns out she was right. He uh, was a charismatic Catholic deacon, very involved in his local church. Now, isn't that a great witness? That she just knew he was a believer by looking at him. And Kathy asked him later about his faith, and he was very happy to talk to her about Jesus with great enthusiasm. Came and preached at the um, church I was leading at the time as well, and he was a great preacher too. But it was his lifestyle, it was his character, it was his personality which provoked the question, are you a believer? What is it about your life? And people at work, listen to this, people at work can tell if you're born again and have been filled with the Holy Spirit, not so much by what you say, but by who you are. What a challenge. Well, so much for bosses. What about the workers? Uh, you are not just some random, replaceable nobody getting a day's wage for a day's graft. If you're an employee, wherever you work, you are an ambassador for Christ. So lift up your head. You've been given a really important role to represent Jesus Christ in your place of work. You have a royal commission to represent the kingdom in your workplace. How do you want to be seen by your colleagues, by contractors, by clients, customers? How do you want to be seen by your employer? Well, let me paraphrase if I can verses 22 to 25. Try and frame this in 21st century terms. We can kind of get a hang, handle on what this means for us. So it says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but, to, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That translates or paraphrases as employees, you should do what the boss asks you to do, not just when they're around, 
but do an honest day's work, offering it up to God. Whatever you do, it says, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So a modern paraphrase, don't just scrape by by doing the bare minimum. Give your absolute best every day. Put your heart and soul into it. You might be badly paid on earth, but there are eternal heavenly bonuses, and they're going to recognize all your hard work and reward you for it. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Paraphrase. Remember this. Ultimately, your boss is Christ himself. And don't think he'll let you off doing a lousy job just because you're a Christian. No favorite. He, he doesn't drop his standards for you just because you're one of his loved children. No favoritism. See, God is looking for people who are thorough, who are industrious, and who end each working day able to say, I gave 100%, and I offered it all up to the Lord. The Bible sets out a vision of a Christian worker who is always cheerful and amenable and hardworking because they treat their work as an act of worship. I contrast that with what sometimes blights a workplace. And I've worked in places like this. People always saying, that's not my job. Yeah? Olympic level wasting of company time. I've seen that as well. Bad language in the workplace. Constantly complaining and griping about the company. Cursing the boss behind his or her back. Clock watching. Always arriving late and leaving early. Jobs worth pettiness. Computer says no unhelpfulness. Slacking skiving, cutting corners. And it doesn't matter, actually, if you're a brain surgeon or a toilet attendant or a stay-at-home mum or a student or if you've long retired. It doesn't matter. The reformer Martin Luther once put it this way. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. And not just because she may sing a Christian hymn, as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making excellent shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So encourage you, I want to challenge you, turn your job or your daily activity into an act of worship. Offer it up to God with joy in your heart. Say to yourself, whatever I have to do today, routine or interesting, whatever it is, it's got to be good enough for the Lord. That's what I'm going to do today. And when you take that attitude into your work, even the dullest day, 
even the dullest routine can be a joy. So as I end, and Graham's going to lead us in a response in, in a moment, but as I end, what do you think God is saying to you today about your work? Part-time, full-time, paid, unpaid, whatever it is you do. Do you need to receive grace from God today so that you can please him more in your workplace, whether you're a boss or an employee? Do you need to put a bad attitude down at the foot of the cross and leave it there so that tomorrow there's a new you in the office, wherever you work? Do you want to ask God today for a spiritual breakthrough so that you can have words of knowledge or you can be a, a better witness to your colleagues or customers? like Baba Ambis's testimony today. Wouldn't it be great if that happened in my workplace? So if you're able to do so, let's stand to pray and Graham's going to lead us in a response.